Amen. Thank you. It's always a very sincere welcome here at West Coast Baptist College, and I appreciate that. And uh, you can sit down. You don't have to stay standing. And uh, man, it's, uh, it feels interesting to be home. I don't know. Uh, I grew up here. Was, we moved here when I was just four years old. And so uh, I know very little of uh, life outside of West Coast Baptist College. Went to uh, the Christian school here, attended college here, and actually worked uh, three years at West Coast Baptist College. And uh, just hard to believe uh, that now that's been five years since I was uh, working here, and uh, I've got two kids, and uh, we travel in full-time evangelism, and uh, that's just unbelievable, but always a joy to be back, and uh, excited to be with you th this morning. Um, I'm excited to preach at Joshua Camps. We'll be back again uh, this summer. We'll be preaching both weeks at Joshua Camps, and I'm excited about that as well, and uh, looking forward to all that's happening here at West Coast Baptist College and the things that uh, the Lord continues to use this ministry to accomplish for His kingdom, and uh, would love for you to take your Bible now at this time and turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter number 14. The Gospel of Matthew chapter number 14. I want to pick up the story in verse number 25. Verse 25. A lot's changed in the uh, five years I've been away from West Coast. But you know, some things, good to know. Dr. Art's good to know. Some things never change. You cannot sit through 24 hours of West Coast without hearing Dr. R say what in the world. I mean, it's just <laughs> some things never change. I'm just so glad what in the world has made it into 2021 with Dr. R into chapel announcements. I appreciate that. Uh, Matthew chapter 14. Pick up the story in verse number 25 with me, and we'll read down to verse 33, where the Bible says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not af afraid. Peter answered him, said, Lord... If it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. I've got two sons. My oldest son is four and a half. He'll make sure to add on the and a half part if I don't, so that's why I say it. And then uh, Logan is two. So we've got Mason, he's four and a half. Logan is two. And uh, they are learning at this stage in life to, um, to play together. Uh, up until this point, it has been Mason building things with Legos or magnetiles. And Logan's favorite thing is destroying the things that Mason builds. And so uh, there's a lot of tension early on in their relationship. But now they're learning to, to play together. And um, one of the favorite things that Mason likes to play is he likes to try to get Logan to laugh. Now, Logan's a hard laugh. He doesn't just smile at anybody. He doesn't laugh at hardly anything. 
But Mason gets Logan to laugh. And he, he, I mean, he does crazy things, things I wouldn't laugh at, but do laugh at. But uh, you know, Mason, he just, his effort is so strong in trying to get Logan to laugh that eventually Logan will give in and just start cracking up. And when Logan cracks up, that makes Mason want to crack up. So then he starts laughing, and his laughter only makes Logan laugh harder. And it just kind of goes back as just this laughter taking place in our house and in our, on our drives. And so it's not uncommon at all for us to be driving down an interstate and me just to hear laughing going on in the back of the van or uh, to wake up and hear two boys laughing in their bedroom, uh, just going back and forth laughing. And that's why it was a particularly strange when last year during uh, the pandemic, we were at our uh, condo there in Arizona. I was downstairs, I think just relaxing. My wife was upstairs in our bedroom and our two boys, we, we, we were pretty confident were in their room playing. We were hearing laughing going back and forth. And uh, then we just started hearing screaming, like terrified screaming. And it wasn't screaming as in, I'm in pain. That's a very distinguishable scream when it comes from my son, Logan. But it was a scream of straight terror, like he had uh, just seen a ghost, you know. And he, Logan is screaming, screaming, like, ah, you know. And so I start making my way upstairs. My wife's a lot closer than me, so she gets there before I get there. And I hear my wife tell my son, Mason, well, don't do that then. If he doesn't like it, stop doing it. It obviously scares him. You can't do that. Well, so I kind of meet her at the outside of their door, and I say, well, what was he doing? She says, oh, you've got to watch the video. And so she had taken a video. And Mason, in an effort to try to get Logan to laugh, had put on this dinosaur mask that we had bought for a teen activity. And he had put this dinosaur mask on, and the mouth moved when you opened your jaw. I think you can still get him at Walmart if you're interested. And he was, he was trying to get Logan to laugh, and he was going up to Logan with that dinosaur mask, and he was saying, hello there, Logan. Hello there, Logan. And Logan, instead of laughing, was in straight terror. See, unbeknownst to Mason, Logan suffers from the fear of dinosaurs, the fear of prehistoric creatures. You know, we live in a very fear-driven world, do we not? seems like everywhere you look, fear is abounding. Fear is omnipresent. It is everywhere. It is always on the rise. Uh, I don't think anyone will have a problem with me doing this because for the most part, we don't mind talking about our fears. I'm just trying to think through some phobias. How many of you would have, uh, say, I have arachnophobia. I have the fear of spiders. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with making your wife kill all the spiders, right, Dr. R? Yeah, okay, okay. Nothing wrong with that. How many of you say you have acrophobia? You're afraid of heights. Afraid of heights, yes. My wife's hand would be raised on that. She won't even, she won't even go on an elevator without being able to look out the window. She says, a fear of heights. How many of you have uh, optophobia? Optophobia. That's the fear of opening your eyes. Anybody like that in here? Today, some of you can use that in class next time you're sleeping. Just say, oh, no, I wasn't asleep. I just have the fear of opening my eyes. Yeah, we live in a fear-driven world. And there's phobias for everything. In fact, in 2020, uh, the phobia.net, it's a real website, they uh, cataloged 32,000 new phobias in the year 2020. And uh, I guess that makes sense. It's a pretty terrifying year. And one of them is called 2020 phobia. It's the fear of ever living in 2020 again. And, uh, you know, uh, they can re we're real creative with that name there. There's also one that they added called phobia phobia. That's the fear of becoming afraid of more things. And so uh, I guess by doing that, they succumb to the very fear they were hoping not to have. So I mean, fears are everywhere. And we, we don't mind talking about our fears. We don't mind saying, oh, yeah, I've got that. And, oh, I, I, don't, I hate doing that. And I don't like to do this. 
But I think there's a whole nother list of fears that we don't like to talk about. I think of uh, the fear of rejection. Or how about this one? The fear of failure. The fear of coming up short. The truth is none of us in this room like to fail. None of us in this room enjoy the taste of failure. The taste of losing it all. Um, We live in a very success-driven world amongst their fears. Uh, Success is final. Failure is final. And if you fail at something, then um, you're not good enough. You don't quite have what it takes. Uh, You shouldn't have come on this journey in the first place. If you fail in our world today, it is a dead-end street. But I like what William A. Ward said. He said, failure should not be our undertaker, but rather our teacher. It is a delay in the journey, not defeat. It is a temporary detour, not a dead-end street. Because the fact is, you will always pass failure on your way to success. And here in this passage of scripture, we read about the disciples in the boat in the middle of the night. It's around 3 a.m. and they see a spirit walking on the water and they are sore afraid. They're terrified. Now, if you were rowing your boat at 3 a.m. in the the waters and you saw a spirit walking on the sea, you would also be terrified and screaming for your life. So they're afraid. Jesus immediately comforts them. He says, hey, it is I. Be of good cheer. And it's Peter. It would be Peter to think of this. He always seems to be sticking his foot in his mouth, seeing if it fits. He says, Lord, if that be you, bid me come unto thee on the water. He says, can I do that? That just looks like a lot of fun. I would love to walk on the water with you. And Jesus says, come. Aren't you glad the Lord delights in our stupidity sometimes? He says, Peter, you want to walk on the water? Come on, man. And the Bible says that when Peter got out of the ship, he walked on the water. He walked on the water. Peter achieves the impossible in this passage of scripture. He does what no man has ever done before and what no man's gonna do again without God's help. He walks on water. Yet when you and I refer to this story in scripture, we talk about Peter as if he's this massive failure. That Peter is the guy that thought he could walk on water and learn the hard way you can't. But i got to be honest with you, college student, I don't see failure in this passage. I see fight. I see a man who's not, who's not afraid of the potential of coming up short. He's not afraid of the potential of sinking in the water. He's not afraid of, 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 of the potential of failure, but rather he's willing to step out of the comfort zone of his boat, to step out on some risky waters and get his feet wet in order to get as close as he possibly could to Jesus Christ. And I just wonder this morning, could that fight be found in any of us when it comes to our walk with God. When it comes to how we walk with God daily, is there any fight in us that would say, you know what, I'm not afraid to step out of the boat. I'm not afraid to get my feet wet. I'm not afraid to to, to step into some uncomfortable situation. If that's gonna get me closer to Jesus, then that's where I wanna go. Or are we just, well, the, the boat's nice. He seems like he's coming towards us. It'll all be okay. Is there any fight left? See, maybe there's some lessons we can learn from silly old Peter in this passage of Scripture. Would you notice with me, first of all, I believe 
Peter teaches us a lesson about desire. A lesson about desire. Look at verse number 28 again. It says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Uh, You know, one thing I think we miss when we read our Bible with uh, westernized, Americanized eyes is that we don't quite understand what it means to be a disciple in this day. Um, uh, we, I, I've kind of always thought that discipleship and the years that G, the disciples spent with Jesus was like going to Bible college, you know. He was their instructor, they were the Bible college students, and uh, they were learning and doing all this in a very uh, academic type of a mindset. But that really doesn't encapsulate the relationship between a rabbi and their Talmudin or their discipleship. Um, A rabbi would not just spend time with his disciples or his Talmudin for six hours of the day. It wasn't like they met at class at 7.30 and 8.30 and had modules. No, they spent every waking moment with one another. Uh, They lived with the rabbi. (laughs) They, they, They ate with the rabbi. They they slept where the rabbi slept. They, they walked the same path that the rabbi walked. They were with him constantly. Many times they would abandon everything that they owned for three to five years in order to follow the rabbi's steps. And their goal wasn't just to know what the rabbi knows, although that's definitely part of it, but it wasn't so that they could pass his class or get their degree and go on and do bigger and better things. No, they wanted to know what the rabbi knew, but they also, in their hearts, wanted to be like their rabbi. They craved to be just like him. In fact, Ray Vanderlaan, who is a Jewish Jesus follower, says this. He says, this type of a relationship between a rabbi and their disciples is the most intense and personal style of education our world has ever known. As the rabbi lived and taught, his Talmudin would listen and watch and then go out and imitate in a desire to be like him. In other words, everything the rabbi did, they wanted to do. And so when they saw Jesus have compassion on people, they wanted that compassion. And when they saw Jesus love someone, they wanted to show that love. And they wanted to be just like their rabbi. They wanted to imitate him in every way possible. And as I was reading some books uh, over the pandemic uh, last year about the the discipleship and what it means to truly be a disciple, and I was reading these things, I was starting to understand that nothing in my life compares to that. I, I don't think I've ever had a relationship with anything quite like that until I remembered a movie called Space Jam. And then I thought, you know, I have been here before. In 1996, I think I was introduced to the movie Space Jam as a little child. And uh, it's a story about Bugs Bunny, and uh, as all good stories are. And uh, Bugs Bunny is in a little bit of trouble. Some alien invaders have come. They have threatened to make them their prisoners and hold them captive. And uh, so Bugs Bunny challenges these little tiny aliens into a basketball competition. I don't know why I'm explaining the movie of Space Jam, but yes, that is in my chapel notes. And... um, and so uh, uh, the, the aliens steal some talent from the NBA greats like Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, and two other guys no one knew. And uh, uh, he, 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 they, they become these, 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 these giant, these monsters, I think is how they are credited in the movie. 
And so Bugs Bunny goes, oh no, we're in trouble, but never fear, Michael Jordan's out playing golf, we'll just go pull him down a golf hole real quick. And uh, they pull Michael Jordan down a golf hole, and they convince Michael Jordan to play on their team. But Michael Jordan's retired, he's doing baseball even though he stinks at it, and uh, he, it's because that's what his dad always wanted him to do, and there's a whole scene at the beginning of the movie where he's, he's I believe I can fly, and dad, one day I'm going to be just like you, and it's going to be great. And then he plays baseball because somehow that's what his dad wanted him to do. And so he's playing baseball, but he's no good at it. They pull him down a golf hole and they convince him, we need you to help us beat these monsters. Okay, so movie ends with this great basketball match between Michael Jordan and the Looney Tunes against these monsters. And I'm watching this movie as a, as a little boy. And my eyes are glued to the screen. And like, I just fell in love with Michael Jordan. I mean, the things he's doing in that movie are almost cartoon-like, you know? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. He's stretching his arm way over everybody else to dunk it. I mean, he's, he's got this one move where he goes between his legs, behind his back to a spin around two aliens to lay in the hoop. I mean, it's just awesome. And then the movie ends, and they, they show a bunch of clips from Michael Jordan's career, and you're like, hey, this guy's almost as good as he is in the movie, you know? Like, this, this is pretty cool. Well, I remember I was watching Space Jam. I think I rewind and watched that movie over and over again. And one day, my older brother John came in. My brother John is 16 years older than me. He's my pastor now. And he came in, and he was like, you're watching Space Jam? I said, yeah, I love this Michael Jordan actor. And he goes, you like Michael Jordan? And he goes into his room, and he pulls out all these v v VHSs, if you know what that is. And he pulls out all these VHSs of, of games he had recorded of Michael Jordan's and we start watching Michael Jordan games together and I just everything Michael Jordan was I remember I'd go out in our backyard and I would try to imitate his moves I would rewind and rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and then go out and try to play just like Michael Jordan well then I got into junior high and I discovered YouTube and then you don't need the VHS tapes they're all right there digitally downloaded onto YouTube and you could watch full games and full series and I tell you I just got addicted to watching Michael Jordan and everything Michael Jordan did on the court that's how I wanted to do I wore a, 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 a sweatband here because Michael Jordan wore a sweatband here. I went out and bought Jordan shoes because you had to be like Mike you got to get Jordans. My first number for for basketball guess what it was? No, it was nine. It was nine because they only did single digits, so I couldn't get 23. But I looked up Michael Jordan's Olympic number, and he wore the number nine. And so I wanted the number nine because everything Michael Jordan did, that's what I wanted to do. And I know that might sound silly, but that's the kind of a relationship that's taking place here that Jesus is forming in his disciples, this desire to be just like him. So before we, we criticize the audacity of Peter to think he could walk on the water with Jesus, just note with me that this is a disciple, this is a Talmud, desperately desiring to be just like Jesus Christ. And he's saying, listen, if you're walking on the water, then I want to walk on the water. And I know we might have some hesitancy on that. We might say, yeah, I get he wanted to be like Jesus in his love and in his compassion, but shouldn't Peter have known he couldn't do the miraculous? I mean, he's not God. Well, I agree with you, except for in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two, and he enables them to cast out unclean spirits, to raise, uh, to, 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 to raise lame men to walk and blind men to see. So Jesus has enabled these disciples to go out and do the miraculous 
before. And so now Peter's in the boat four chapters later, and he's sitting there going, okay, I know you're able to make me to be like you. And so he says, Lord, if that's you, if that's truly you out there, then bid me come. Because if you want me to come, I'm coming. I want to walk on the water just like you. I want to be just like you. And in that moment, it didn't matter if it was stepping out of a comfort zone. It didn't matter if it meant stepping onto a stormy sea. Peter desperately wanted to be just like Jesus. And can we just stop for a second and realize that's what the Christian life is all about? Is that not why we're here, church? Is that not why we, we've come to a Bible college to study the scriptures so that we can be more like Christ? Hey, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Paul told uh, uh, the, the, the church in Romans chapter eight that, but that whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. God desperately wants to shape you into being just like Jesus Christ. John said it himself in 1 John 2, in verse number 5, he said, if any, of you, if, if, any, if any man saith he abideth in him, he ought also walk even as he hath walked. He ought to follow in the footsteps of the Savior. He ought to try to live as Jesus lived. Peter said he left us an example that we should therefore follow in his steps. The disciples wanted to walk in step with Jesus and they invite you to do the same thing. They say that's how Jesus wants you to live. Jesus wants you to have compassion on people like he had compassion on people. And he wants you to love people that he loved. And he wants you to have a relationship with God the Father like he had a relationship with God the Father. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And that's going to require you to step out on some waves. That's going to require you to get out of your comfort zone. And I tell you, the only reason that we don't look more like Jesus in our world today is because we truly don't desire it. We don't desire it. Let's put it this way, we don't want it. Because if we really became like Jesus, it's gonna require us to change. And we don't like to change. We don't like to change who we are. Uh, we love sermons that give us three steps to do so that we can go and then be right with God. But God's not giving you something to do when it's following him. He's giving you someone to become. He's giving you something to become, to be shaped into. And that means sometimes God's got to take out a chisel and, sh and chip away the parts of your life that don't look like him. Sometimes it's not easy to change who you are. Because if we're going to love people like Jesus loved, we're going to have to love some people that we don't think are worthy of our love. And we're going to have to forgive some people who have hurt us in ways that we don't want to talk about. And we're going to have to have compassion on a group of people that is a little outside of the norm and outside of our comfort zone. And so we would rather just settle for our shallow, stagnant walk with God. We'll stay in the boat. He'll come to us eventually. But where are the Christians that would say, no, 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 Lord, if you're out on the water, then I want to be out on the water. A lesson about desire. Would you notice, secondly, a lesson about distraction? A lesson about distraction. Uh, we, we know the story. It says in verse 29 that Jesus said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the boat, he walked on the water. Very important phrase here at the end of verse 29. To go to Jesus. Verse 30 says, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, 
save me. So there's that very important phrase at the end of verse 29 that says he's going out to go to Jesus. So I don't know how this all played out. I, I, I wasn't there. I can only use my imagination. I don't know if Peter uh, got his answer from the Lord. Like if the Lord said, come, and Peter was like, yeah. And he just jumped out of the boat. I don't know if that's what Peter did, but if it was me, that's not what I'm doing. No, no, no. Uh, my jaw's kind of open, like, I was kind of hoping you'd say, no, that's okay, you know, I was kind of, you know, I mean, uh, okay, and, and uh, you know, so now you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, okay, I'm coming, I'm coming, uh, you know, uh, let's see here, oh, ooh, water's cold, okay, wasn't expecting that, you know, the other disciples, get out there, Peter, he said you could do it, go, go, he said you could go, Thomas in the back, he's going to drown, <laughs> for sure, I've seen Peter swim, he's going straight to the bottom, you know. But, but, but at some point, Peter takes that courage, right? Where he's just like, okay, get off of me. Please stop. Thomas, shut up. Okay. And uh, he, he steps out of that water. And he puts that foot down. His disciples are still holding him back. He's saying, let me go. And he gets that other foot out. <laughs> and he's walking on the water to go to Jesus. I don't know what Jesus' face looks like in this moment, but I just think he's smiling right along with Peter, like, yeah, buddy, uh-huh, come on. <laughs> and then the Bible says, but when he saw the wind's boisterous. In other words, when he took his eyes, something happened on that water that caused him to take his eyes off of Jesus. And the moment he took his eyes off of Jesus and placed them on the wind that was boisterous and the water that was raging, that's when he began to sink. That's when he began to struggle. It was when he took his eyes off of Jesus and placed them on his circumstance and his surroundings. Now maybe the greatest lesson we can learn from this passage of scripture is this, that you and I will never be like Jesus if we do not remain focused on Jesus. We cannot become like him if we are not focused on him. And so many times I think we will take some steps out of a boat and we will walk onto some raging waters in order to get closer to Jesus, but then something happens that diverts our attention to something else and many of us never recover from the distractions. Many of us keep our hand plowed to the wind boisterous and we fight off the wind in hopes of trying to get to Jesus, but instead we're drowning in our own efforts. The only way that you can be shaped into Jesus is not through a community effort, but through a solidarity effort of you keeping your attention and your focus on Jesus Christ. In other words, stay in his book. Stay in his words. Get rooted in what, in what he is trying to teach you and who he's trying to mold you to be. Don't take your eyes off Jesus Christ. I like what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says, wherefore, seen about, we are compassed with such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that God has set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, Hebrews 11 gives us this wall of faith of all these men who have walked with God, who have gotten closer to God, who have drawn closer to him and seen their testimonies. May we run the race that God's called us to run. And hey, get rid of the weight. Get rid of the things that drag you down. Get rid of the sin that easily trips you up and keep your eyes focused on Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher of your faith. He's the finish line. He's the goal. Jesus is the crown at the end of the race. Just keep your eyes on him. And man, we read these verses and we're like, yes, 
Get rid of the weights. Get rid of the things that drag us down. Get rid of that sin that easily trips us up. I think Hebrews 12 is a New Testament parallel to Isaiah 26.3 that says, He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because his heart trusteth in him. I, they're, they're, that word stayed has the idea of being anchored to, being rooted in Jehovah himself. It's the idea of, man, yeah, I'm going to anchor myself to the rock of God. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to drift away. I'm not going to have my boat tripped up on these rocks. I'm going to stay anchored to Jehovah, anchored to him. And we love these verses, and we'd love to be Hebrews 12 Christians, and we'd love to be Isaiah 26 Christians. But the truth is, we fail. The truth is, the reality is, we do get distracted. The reality is, we do drift at times, do we not? And the reality is, we're more like Peter than we are the author of Hebrews. We identify more with someone who has, has made some steps out on the water and have gotten distracted. We drift. We, we find out there's a reason it's called easily besetting sin. We find out there are things in this world, emotional things that can happen, mental things that can happen that can just drag us down, bog us down in our journey to follow after Jesus. And that's why I love the account of Peter. Because in Matthew chapter 14, I believe Peter is even a lesson, he even teaches us a lesson in his moment of failure. See, I've always kind of learned this story, I don't know if I learned it or if I just assumed it. I probably just assumed it because I like to imagine things and I like to put myself in the story. And I've just kind of always assumed that Peter's walking on the water and the wave brushed up against his thigh. Perhaps a fish jumped up and slapped him in the stomach. I don't know what happened. But Peter got distracted. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he starts going, what am I doing? I'm out of the boat. Oh no, oh no. And he starts sinking. He gets neck deep in the water and he's taking in water in his lungs. He's flailing around. The disciples are, are going on the boat. They're like, yeah, Peter, go, go, go. Oh no, Peter, oh no. And they start rowing the boat. They're throwing life jackets out. I don't know what they're trying to do to save Peter, right? And Jesus, I've always kind of got Jesus as like just kind of staying close enough by to hear Peter, but he's not, you know, he's just kind of like going, are you going to call on me, Peter? Are you going to, are you going to, no, you want to drown tonight. Okay, all right, that's fine. And he's just kind of walking around, and then Peter finally, like he notices his sandal in the water next to him. He's like, oh yeah, Lord, save me. And the Lord then catches him and says, oh man, Peter. Okay, but is that what the Bible says happens in the story? Let's look back at this, at, at this verse here in verse number 30. It says, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And watch this. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. See, I don't think that verse, and beginning to sink, he cried, save me, paints the picture that I just painted. I kind of get the feeling that Peter, as soon as he began to sink, realized he made a mistake. Realized he blew it. Realized he lost his power. And it was in that moment that as he began to sink, he began to cry, and he said, Lord, help me, I need your help, and he got his eyes back on Jesus, and I love it. If Jesus was trying to teach Peter a lesson, if, Peter, if, if Jesus was like, no, Peter, you blew it, you took your eyes off me, you got to drown a little while, buddy, he would have let him do it, but Jesus immediately stretches forth his hand to catch him, and so I think that even in our distractions, what happens so oftentimes is that we'll step out onto a raging water and we'll get distracted and we'll start to sink and we never recover from that. We sit and sulk in our failures 
And what, what we'll do is we'll, we'll just kind of sit down and we'll say things like, well, I never should have trusted God in the first place. I, ne- I, knew, I, I knew I wasn't cut out for that. I knew I wasn't cut out for Greek. I knew I wasn't cut out. I'm a failure. I blew it. I'll never learn this. I'll never be able to do this. I'll never pastor a church more than five. Because we fail at things. We come up short and we stay down. Peter doesn't stay down. Peter practices what Proverbs teaches, that a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. By the way, that's not the only time that verse says that. It goes on to say it three more times. And the separation between the righteous and the wicked in that passage of scripture is that the just have this tenacity about them that even when they make mistakes, even when they get knocked down, even when they get pushed to the ground, they don't let those things define them. They're not defined by their fears. They're not defined by their failure. They're going to be defined by their by their faithfulness to get back up and keep walking with God. And I love that Peter in this passage, oh, he gets distracted and he starts to sink, but he immediately, he gets his eyes back on Jesus. He says, I'm not gonna let this deter me from walking on the water again and being like Jesus Christ. See, Peter teaches us how to fail. He teaches us that failure is inevitable, but even when you fail, there is a God who remains faithful. His arm is extended, and if you will but turn your eyes upon Jesus again, oh, the things of this earth, the winds, the waves, the circumstances, they'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. His grace that reaches out in our failure and says, come on, buddy, back up on the water. Come on, buddy, let's keep on walking together. Come on, buddy, you're, you're, you're getting close. Keep walking on the water. Don't sit and sulk in your failure. Don't be defined by your failure. Be defined by your faith. My friends, if Abraham would have let failure define him, there'd be no children of God today. If Moses let failure define him, the Israelites would still be in Egypt. If Jacob let his failure define him, Esau would have murdered him. These men are known, they're they're in the wall of faith, not because they were perfect, but because they were flawed and failed time and time again, but their mistakes did not define them. Their trust in God defined them. And they said, I'm not gonna live to this narrative. I'm gonna live after the narrative of who God is calling me to be and what God can give me through his grace by faith. That's what it means to walk with God. So we see a lesson about desire. We see a lesson about distraction. But what you notice finally with me, a lesson about development. A lesson about development. This is at this point in the story, we typically go to Jesus's words in verse 31, and we read them as a condemnation against Peter. That immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and we kind of ignore that part. And we read that he said unto him, O thou of little faith, Wherefore didst thou doubt? Or perhaps I'll read it as many of us read it, and we say, oh, thou of little faith. (sighs) Where where did you doubt? (sighs) These stupid disciples are never going to get it. That's just kind of how we we superimpose it, right? That he's like, oh, (sighs) little faith. (sighs) Unbelievable. It's like my mom. And I fell my spelling test for the 18th time. Oh, Erica, you can't just memorize things. That'd be funnier if she was still teaching here because I think she would still do that to some of you. 
But we read this passage, and, and this is where we get our idea that, oh, silly Peter, he should have never stepped out of the boat, he should have never gotten out on the water. But let's just ask a, let's ask a reasonable question. Who in this moment is closest to Jesus? Is it Matthew? Is it, Mark? Is it, uh, is it, is it uh, John? Is it James? Either one of them? No. It's Peter. Peter's the closest to Jesus. You see, if you're never willing to leave the boat, you're not getting any closer to Jesus. If you're, ne- if you're never willing to fail, you're never going to grow closer to Jesus. And so where a lot of people look at this and see failure, I look at it and see development. <laughs> I see Jesus using this moment to mold Peter into something Peter's going to need. Because when we talk about Peter's failure, we often go to this passage But if you really want to talk about Peter's failure, look no further than the crucifixion story, folks. Where in Caiaphas' courtyard, he denies that he even knew Jesus three times. And he curses a woman to her face and says, I never knew the man, lady. And the Bible records that he catches a glimpse of Jesus being tried in court, being taken away. And Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. He fails so much so that he takes up fishing again. And he's back in his boat. Three days later, he's fishing and he's caught nothing. Deja vu a little bit for Peter here. And he hears a familiar voice over on the shoreline. Who do you think it is? It's the resurrected Christ. And he says, hey, Peter, why don't you try the other side? And Peter, I I just, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it, but I think Peter remembers his time out on the Sea of Galilee as he walked on water and remembers in that moment that he failed that all he had to do to get God to stretch back out his arm of grace was to get his eyes back on him. And Peter throws the net on the other side and he leaps out of the boat and he starts swimming to the shoreline. He rushes towards it to sit down at the resurrected Christ's feet to eat the fish that his hands had cooked with the nail scars still in them. And Peter, as he's eating with the rest of the disciples, is sitting there going this can't be how God's grace works I'm a failure I blew it I denied I even knew him and he's going back to Caiaphas's court and Jesus looks at him and goes Peter do you love me Peter do you still want to be like me I think Jesus has drawn him back to this passage of scripture Peter's mind is going to Caiaphas's court and Jesus is trying to get him to see him walking on water and Peter goes you know I love you And he goes, then feed my sheep. In other words, be used of me. Go out and do what I'm calling you to do. And I think Peter shakes his head. I think Peter goes, no, I can't. I'm a failure. No, 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 Peter. Do you love me? He asked him a second time. He says, Peter, his grace is relentless. He, He doesn't want you to live after the narrative of failure. He wants to continue to develop you into who he's trying to use you to be. And he keeps coming back to him. And he says, yes, I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. And then he asked him a third time. He denied him thrice. And then he asked him if he loved him thrice. Boom. I mean, this is awesome. God's grace is greater than your denial. 
God's grace is greater than your failure. God is able to develop you even though you're a sinner that falls into fleshly appetites and sin. God still wants to use you to feed his sheep. And may we just be reminded that Peter's the one that goes on and preaches at Pentecost. And it's Peter that goes on to see Cornelius' vision that, that, that not all people are unclean. And he goes and he brings the gospel to the Gentiles. And then at Jerusalem Council, when the church is arguing whether Gentiles can be accepted into this gospel. It's Peter that stands in, the, in favor with Paul and says, hey, no, these Gentiles can be clean. They can receive the grace that, that God has given to us. It's through Peter that you and I have the gospel today, folks. Through silly old Peter out on the boat. See, God was developing Peter into something here. And he looks at Peter and he catches him and he says, oh, thou of little faith. Now I know this is the question I always get. Well, then why does he call it little faith? Well, let's just acknowledge something. He doesn't say, oh, thou of no faith. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, how you lack in faith. By the way, Jesus has no problem doing that. In fact, in Luke 17, the disciples come to Peter and they say, Lord, increase our faith. This is right after a lesson about forgiveness and forgiving someone unconditionally, even if they trespass against you seven times in a day. And, and the disciples come to the Lord and they say, if you want us to do that, you're going to have to grow our faith, increase our faith, give us more faith. We could put it this way, give us great faith. That's going to require great faith. And Jesus says, if you had faith, even the faith of a grain of a mustard seed, you'd say to that mountain, move, and it would obey you. Okay, so first of all, he says, you don't have faith, because if you had faith, even the grain of a mustard seed... Now, I might shake some heads on this, but how big is a grain of a mustard seed, Brother Shetler? Yeah, palm of your hand. Teeny, tiny, dare I say, little. He says, hey, if you, if you had little faith, if you had just a little bit of faith, you'd have mountain moving kind of faith. You'd have tree uprooting kind of faith. You'd have walk on water kind of faith. Listen, if little faith can enable Peter to walk on water, and if little faith can be described as Jesus as moving mountains and uprooting trees, then dare I say, Lord, grant me some little faith. Lord, I want that little faith in you that you can use me to do the impossible, that you can use me to do anything because it's not rooted in who I am, it's rooted in who you are. See, faith is not about the quantity, it's about the source of your faith. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about who your faith is in. Because you can put all the faith you want in your good works and good deeds to save you from your sin. But that ain't cutting it, is it? No, it's when you put your faith in Jesus that you're saved from your sin. And if it works that way for salvation, then I'm going to go on and say it's, it works that way in every situation in your life. It's not dependent on what you do. It's dependent on the God you serve. And so he says, Lord, Peter, he says, Peter, you had little faith. You were doing it. He says, where did you doubt that? Where did you doubt your ability to become like me? College student, you've got to dispel the doubts that you have that God can use you. When, when you fell a class, you've got, to dis, you've got to dispel the doubts that Satan's going to try to put in your mind that says, you're never getting out of this place. You're going to be here for like 10 years. No one's going to hire you. You've got to dispel the doubts that God can use you. The biggest hindrance to walking with God is you. Is your belief in whether he can use you or not. That's what's got to change. 
My son Logan has Down syndrome. And I'll try to make this as short as I possibly can, but Logan uh, with Down syndrome, uh, he struggles with some things. Uh, children with Down syndrome have a lack of uh, muscle tone. It requires them to work 10 times harder to put on muscle than you or me. And so they got to work at some things a little harder. And so walking is one of those things that just takes them a little while. It doesn't work this way in every child with Down syndrome, but it certainly worked that way with Logan. Logan struggled with muscle tone. You'd pick him up, he'd just kind of flop in your hand. Like, and whenever he'd like lift his head up, we were like, you're doing it, Logan. Good job, man. And uh, Logan, I remember by one years old, he was starting to army crawl on the ground. We were getting pumped. And then like a few months later from that, I walk into a room and Logan is standing in the middle of the room with nothing around him. This is awkward. I've never seen him stand before. And my wife comes in and she goes, what happened? I said, I thought you put him like that. She said, I thought you put him like that. So I knocked him over. You stand when I tell you to stand, kid. You don't stand on your own. I knocked him over. And Logan got right back up. No help from anything, just got right back up. I thought, he's going to be walking soon. Well, he didn't start walking soon. He continued to struggle in that department. He would just stand in the middle of rooms and stares into the distance. Like, yeah, this is fun. <laughs> Mason started playing Ring Around the Rosie around him as a game. You know, that's kind of what they did. And then one day I saw Logan doing this in the middle of our living room. I could just get that foot to move forward, we'd have our problem solved. So I went behind his leg and I hit his calf and he would go. <laughs> circles. He's, he's missing some parts in the Father Abraham song, but he's, he's got the first part down for sure. And it took us a while, but eventually we found out Logan likes uh, technology. He likes cell phones. And so we would tease him with the cell phone. We said, come on, Logan, you, you want to come and get the phone? Get the phone. And Logan, I'll never forget that first day, standing in the middle of the room, he took that first step, and he fell straight on his face. It was awesome. Fell face plant instantly. But Logan, I thought for sure he was going to cry. I thought for sure he was going to never want to walk again. But you know what Logan did? He sat up. He looked around. And then he did this. <laughs> and he got back up. And he tried to take another step, and he fell flat on his face again. And I tell you, I watched my son do that 15 times in a row. And he never cried one time. He smiled after every time. Why? Because Logan desperately desired to walk. And Logan walks pretty good now. We can't keep up with him half the time. But the truth is, where are the Christians that are willing to keep getting back up and keep getting back up in spite of their failure, in spite of falling flat on their face, that won't sit down and say, this is tough, this is tiring, but instead will look around and take note of their failure. Well, th this is a problem, I, I messed up. But will then smile in the face of God's relentless grace as he continues to reach his hand out and offer us to stand back up and say, come on, you're getting closer. You're getting closer to me. Lord, we thank you this morning for your grace. Lord, I pray that this college, these college students would not be defined by their failures, but we'd be defined by their faith. Lord, failure is inevitable. It happens to all of us. Lord, I pray that today we would walk in your grace. We'd walk in our faith in you and that we would pursue you with all of our hearts. That We would desire what Peter desired. That we would learn as Peter learned. And that, Lord, we'd be developed into the image of your Son.
Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. We're gonna have the piano begin to play just briefly. But if the Lord spoke to your heart, this is your opportunity to respond. There's an altar here. You've got your seats. The most important part in this moment is just to spend some time with God and say, God, your grace is what I wanna be defined by. Your fa- my, my faith in you, that's what I wanna be defined by. I, I, I wanna get out of the boat. I wanna walk with you. You do business with God. Dr. R will close chapel as the Holy Spirit leads him.